This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. When Priscilla met and married Elvis Presley, she was living every teenage girl's dream. And for years, in films, television, and music, their relationship was romanticized, even after their divorce and Elvis's death. But in most depictions, Elvis was at the center of the story, with little interrogation of their age difference, Elvis being 24 and Priscilla just 14 years old when they met. In the new movie Priscilla, filmmaker Sofia Coppola uses her signature style to look at their love affair from Priscilla's vantage point, a teenager who comes of age during her romance with Elvis. Coppola adapted the story from Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me. This is Coppola's eighth feature film. Some of her others include The Virgin Suicides, Marie Antoinette, and Lost in Translation, which she won an Oscar for in 2003 for Best Original Screenplay. Sofia Coppola, welcome back to Fresh Air. It really seems like we can never get enough of the phenomenon that was Elvis. I mean, we just keep telling variations of his story over and over. But there is something so fresh about what you have done here by centering Priscilla. And I just want to start with talking a little bit about what it was about this story that made you decide that you wanted to tell it. Thank you. I, Yeah, I think like you were saying, Elvis and Priscilla are such huge figures in American culture and folklore. It's kind of the closest we have to royalty. And I I realized when I was reading her book how little we know about her. I just, you know, there's these images in my mind of her and her cat eyeliner and her big hair and beauty and glamour. But I didn't know that much really about her story. I knew she was much younger. So when I, so when I read Priscilla's book, I was really surprised that she was living in Graceland while she was in high school. And I thought, mm-hmm. God, all the things we have to go through as a teenager, she was going through while she was living in Graceland with Elvis. And that's just at the time in your life when you're trying to figure out your identity and all these kind of big stages in your life. And that she, her book was really relatable because she goes through things that, you know, most girls go through as you grow up, but in such an unusual setting. That was such a surprising detail to know that she was in high school living with Elvis. How much did Priscilla Presley have... um, on the film storyline, I see that she was one of the executive producers. I approached her and asked her if I could um, option the rights to her book to make a film of it. And she, you know, thought about it and agreed because she was, you know, said that she liked my work and knew that I was had a sensitive approach. And, you know, she was still very protective, obviously, of the story. And it's very, you know, her life and it's private. But she wrote this book. And so she agreed. And, and then she came on as an executive producer. So she was... Um, available to me to answer questions and went through the script. And it was really important for me that she felt good about the film, that she felt like it represented her story. So it was the first time that I had to think about not only what I wanted to express as an artist, but also take into consideration how to make sure that it was respectful of her and, you know, accurate to her experience. So Priscilla and Elvis met each other in Germany. He was stationed there, of course, during the war. Her parents were there. That's why she was there. Her parents were apprehensive as any parents would be. And Priscilla says they gave in and let her see Elvis because she threatened to run away if they didn't. But you also reveal in this very subtle way something else, and that's um, the power of celebrity. 
how we can be wooed by a pop star like Elvis. But then there was another part of it that I was really fascinated by, and it's like how members of a network can influence each other. And in this case, it was the military. Um, Was that fascinating to you? Yeah, no, that's a really good point because I think before they met him, they were like, of course, no way, absolutely not. You know, they were protective parents, but then... He came in full uniform with, um, you know, very respectful with, and spoke to um, her father. And there was that um, man-to-man military code as well as them being so charmed by him. I think he was must have been so charismatic and, um, you know, lovable. And, you know, they didn't strike me from what she said and what I've read, the, the kind of parents that were pushing their kid to try to get into Hollywood. Like you've heard, you know, some mm-hmm. stories. I felt like they were protective, but that they were you know, charmed by him and and let up. But I saw that there was a lot of tension of that thing of, you know, which I can imagine I, as a mother of a teen, when your kid is convinced that their whole life will fall apart if they don't get what they want and, you, and you're having to balance that with what's, you know, healthy for them. So I, I can imagine what a dilemma, but I, it's hard to imagine ever letting your kid go into, you know, move in with a pop, with an pop star. A pop yeah, star, adult, a man, it doesn't yes. yeah. Of course, with today's eyes, most of us would say Elvis groomed Priscilla. And that really comes across in the film. But it's also really remarkable to me that somehow you made a world where where there's no judgment in the telling of the story. Elvis is a flawed character, but there's no indictment. And I'm just wondering if it was tricky to do because the mythology around him is so strong. Well, I'm glad you say that because I, I was trying to handle that delicately and sensitively. And I always went back to, to Priscilla's story. And, and I felt like my role was just to explain her experience and always go through her point of view and what it was like for her at that age as a teenager. Imagine if this, you know, huge pop star that you have a crush on or, you know, the sexiest man alive picks you out and, you know, the thrill and what, what she's feeling and not to look at it from any other viewpoint. Elvis's estate denied the right to use his music, and it, it kind of seems like that ended up working in your favor. I didn't actually even realize it until after I left the theater. Oh, that's good. Yeah. How did you, how did you work around that? <laughs> you know, I always knew that we might um, not be able to. So there were a couple of his songs that I had wanted to use, but I always knew that we might have to have backup plans and figure something else out. And because the focus is her story, it's you know, it's kind of cool that there isn't even Elvis music in it. But I would have liked to have. There's a song, Pocket Full of Rainbows of his, that I love. Mm-hmm. I listened to a lot um, during filming that I wanted to use. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'd heard that they're very, uh, you know, controlling about the material made on him. And they like to, that they participate in things that they originate. So I understand that they don't want someone else doing their version. But I thought, you know, with Priscilla being such a part of the story that we might have access. But I... I um, when we started thinking about the soundtrack, she talks about Venus playing in the diner when she first meets the friend of Elvis who brings her over. And so I started listening to that, and that started to be the beginning of our soundtrack with my husband's band, Phoenix, um, mm-hmm. worked with me, and they they thought of doing an instrumental version that became her kind of little girl theme song in the first part of the story, and then it and then it evolves. And the whole setting of 60s Memphis was something exciting for me because it's sort of exotic. It's not anything familiar with my upbringing. 
Yeah. It, this music wasn't the type of music that you grew up listening to, but you are known for using music in a very interesting way to kind of use contemporary music to go back in time or different unexpected uses of music. Was there anything in particular with this film that you were like, I think I want to try this now that we know we can't use Elvis, Elvis's music? Yeah, to me, it was um, just going into that era. I I didn't listen to a lot of that music growing up, but I loved. I always loved girl groups and and Phil Spector, so that that mm. was familiar to me. And so I thought about that's my favorite of that era. And and there's something about the Phil Spector sound that has a like a grandeur and this big production and it's kind of swelling and strings. It's really romantic, and I wanted the story to be ultra romantic of her, you know, first teen love and sort of this fairy tale it looks you know perfect on the outside and then it sort of melts in the reality of when she goes into this world and it has Alice in Wonderland feeling to me too her her time in Graceland mm, I um, see that yep so I, I was thinking about that kind of Phil Spector sound and and then I remember the Ramones recorded an album with him and I love that song so to me that they all have that kind of um that through line of of a sound in common but I always to me, it's always important that the emotion that the music underlines the emotion, and and when um, Phoenix suggested Crimson and Clover, like to me, that's such a goosebumps mm-hmm. moment after her mm-hmm. first kiss that it has to be really epic. So, so it was really fun to to piece it together. Sophia, I read it wasn't easy to fund this film. I think people might actually be surprised by that. Um, is it true that you had to slash 10 pages from the script? Yeah, that was one of the hardest things I ever did. It was a couple weeks before shooting and my producer said, we have to cut a week out of the schedule. Um, we have to yeah, cut out 10 pages. And I was like, what? It was so you know hard to do. But actually, it was a great exercise later. It all worked out. Like We were able to piece it together. And in a way, it was like doing the editing beforehand. So uh, it was one of those things that was challenging, but it, but it ended up... Um, you know, being a good thing. But there was one scene in the book where she describes riding a motorcycle with Elvis and all the guys, like riding, she had a Honda and she was like eight months pregnant and she was trying to keep up with them and still be fun. Even though she was eight months pregnant, she was going to ride a motorcycle with them. And I I just love the visual of that and, <laughs> and just that she was always trying to be the ideal woman at every stage. That is definitely the thing that we take away is there was just a yearning to belong, yeah. which is also... A, a teenage thing too. This wherever you're in, whatever environment you want to be a part of that that ecosystem, that that's group. So, yeah, that's so true. It's so true at that at that age. And I think she was just kind of coming into you know being a woman, and and so she was wanting so much to be his. He had such strong ideas of like, the ideal woman, and she was trying to be that for him, and always trying to um, kind of reach that that unattainable. Uh, role in his in his eyes, and I was so impressed that she had the strength to leave him when she did as a you know a young woman, um, because she you know her formative years were were so centered around um, being Mrs. Elvis Presley. This was something that felt like maybe an evolution to the stories that you tell, because basically she's a young woman who outgrows. I mean, she's outgrowing her teenage fantasy. She finds a way to free herself from this larger-than-life man. And so many of your other movies, I'm thinking about Marie Antoinette, for instance, it acknowledges the powerful men, but the women are really never able to get away. Um, Yeah, that's true. Was that something you identified for yourself in this film and in this storyline, you being interested in it? 
Yeah, I loved that was a big part of it to me that she left. I was so struck by that, especially at that time. It was so much harder than it is today. And and I, you know, I have friends, their mothers went through divorce in the early 70s and how how difficult it was to divorce a powerful man, especially she had no income of her own. And to have that um, that strength that she knew that she had to find her own identity outside of him and, you know, make the life that was right for her and, and her daughter. Um, I was really impressed by that. Hair and makeup played such a huge part in us understanding where we were in the story as well, and watching the film and really the, the story of them, period. Like when you look back at photos and video, we yeah. always can orient ourselves based on how they look. Definitely. Uh, it, it was, of course, it's always fascinating how interested and involved Elvis was in Priscilla's look, her hair and her makeup and her clothes. Were there any other surprises in the way Elvis perceived or valued aesthetics or Priscilla's look that really stood out to you? She talks a lot about that in the in the book and we show in the film, like he had really definite ideas of, of how she should look and, and she was almost like this doll to him and she... I think at first it was fun, you know, he would take her to these stores with glamorous dresses and intimidating, but, you know, exciting. And then like trying to, I know that thing when you're young, you're trying to be more grown up or fit in with the older kids. And so I, you know, approached it like that. But yeah, he was so particular from his experience in movies, you know, about makeup and and whatever. So she was really um, trying to fit in, as you said, in that world. And I, it was so helpful to see all these photos of her in the different eras and the, and how how tall sometimes the hair would remind me of Marie Antoinette like they got the hair got really tall and mm-hmm. and the and and she's so known for that cat eyeliner and I I one of the details from the book that I love that is in the film is that she was putting on her false eyelashes that she was going into labor yes her baby and like <laughs> oh just yeah just the commitment to glamour at, at all times I think you know she was always done I don't think she ever went downstairs without, you know, full hair and makeup and dressed completely. And, and he, and she said he always came down in a full outfit. Like he, he was, there was no lounging around and outside. That also sounds like um, something of the time. People yeah. just dressed all the time too. Yeah. People dress up to travel. And I love that the bags matched the shoes and yeah, it was such, such a different era. So it was fun to recreate that. What was it like casting for Priscilla and Elvis? Because they've been portrayed so much. Yeah, it was daunting. I mean, the first thing I thought of is uh, for Priscilla, how am I going to find an actress that can play 14 believably to 28? You know, that yeah, yeah. that range. And it, um, it's always important to me that the teenager feel authentic and not, you know, that that's done right. I, I asked my casting team, you know, for help and they suggested me meeting Kaylee Spaney because she was an up-and-coming actress that they thought was talented and I remember seeing her um in something else and I thought oh I thought she was like 15 I couldn't believe she has such a baby face and when I met her she really looked like a kid and so um yeah so I felt like she could pull that off and because she's in her 20s I knew that she could you know express the the older woman and um and Kirsten Dunst had just worked with her and so I asked her um you know she liked working with her, and she told me how much she did and how talented she thought she was. So that really gave me the confidence that I felt like um, that we would work well together because I trust Kirsten so much. And then with Jacob, I thought, no one looks like Elvis. Like, how are we going to do this? And, um, yeah, I was asking all my friends, like, if you have any ideas. And um, a friend of mine said, oh, check out Jacob Bellorti. Um Who was on yeah. Euphoria at the Yeah, time. yeah. and yeah. I hadn't seen – I had seen – 
I had seen one episode with my daughter, but I, I can't watch it as a mother of teen. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I wasn't that familiar with him, but I, you know, I had a sense of him. And then um, I met him, and he just was so, um, he was really sweet and thoughtful and very charismatic. You brought up Kirsten Dunst, um, who you've worked with many times before, the Virgin Suicides, Marie Antoinette. And um, you've also worked a lot with Bill Murray, of course, in Lost in Translation, A Very Murray Christmas. Mm. I have always been fascinated by people who are able to work with each other over and over again. What is it about these folks that keeps all of you coming back to each other? Yeah, I mean, I've I've loved working with them, and I always have a great experience on set. I just we always have a really, you know, lucky to have a great team together. And but I, I have a special connection with Bill and with Kirsten. And Kirsten, working with her on my first film in Virgin Suicides, we just um, you know formed a, a bond that I I always love to work with her and always am excited about projects that I can do with her. And she just has a way of expressing. Um, some side of myself or something I'm thinking about in a way that is very we barely have to to say she just knows she just gets it and we have a shorthand um Mm -hmm. and I just and I love her sensibility and her sense of humor and how and how she um it's just fun to see what she does with the material and we you know kind of grew up together in our career life and as people I met her when I was 29 and now we both in that time have had kids and it's fun to see her um now, you know, be a mother. And so she's like a little sister. And Bill is just someone that, um, you know, really took a chance on me with Lost in Translation and just, um, you know, really brought so much to the story that I was like, convinced. I, w- I just said I wasn't going to make that movie if he wasn't going to do it. And I, I pursued tracking him down for like a year. And he finally met with me and, um, and agreed to come to Tokyo for this crazy short shoot. But we were like up all night shooting in the hotel so we wouldn't disturb guests. And it was just a, um, an adventure, and he really just brought so much to it. And, um, and so I'm always grateful, and, and, and now I'm happy to have him be someone in my life that I um, can count on. Yeah, I can't get enough of that story about how you were so nervous that Bill Murray wouldn't show up for the Lost in Translation <laughs> filming in Tokyo. That, um, but, but even before that, the part of the story that I think I love the most or cracks me up is— I don't even know if it's true, but that you were trying to get in touch with him. You could not get in touch with him. You really um, had envisioned him for this film that you saw, like, Bob Costas on yes, a plane. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I was so desperate. I spent, like, a year. I have, I've made a little kind of video diary that I, I have called Waiting for Bill. And it was I was just, like, obsessed <laughs> and asking anyone I knew, how can I? He didn't have an agent. And I he, at the time, had this 800 number where you could leave messages. And, yeah. and then I remember, yeah, sitting... Like after like months and months of trying to track him down, sitting by Bob Costas and thinking like, well, maybe for sports, maybe he knows him through golf. <laughs> like, do you know Bill Murray? I was just like a crazy person at that point. And luckily, my friend Mitch Glazer, who's a writer and an old friend of Bill's, uh, looked at um, some pages I had and thought it was something interesting for him and and introduced us. And I always remember the first time. He, he was with him at dinner um, and he said oh, you know, Sophia wants to meet you. And he, I just got a call out of the blue saying, can you come over right now and meet us at this restaurant? I'm here with Bill in New York. And I, like, ran over. 
I, I had someone like that would babysit my phone when I was in a, a class. I was taking an acting oh, class working yeah. on the script. And I had someone, I forgot about this, that someone had to babysit my phone outside the class in case Bill <laughs> called. Like it was so, <laughs> so, it, so it was really the focus of my life for that year. And um, I was so happy to finally meet him. And he said I, he might be inclined, you know, to do it. And I remember he was wearing a seersucker suit. And I'll always remember um, this moment. And then... He, yeah, he kind of said that, yeah, that he would think about it and that he thought he would do it. But we never had a contract or he wouldn't let us book his flight or anything. So there was that moment where I was I was spending all this money in Tokyo, starting the production just on the, the hope that Bill was going to show up. And then when my producer, I got this call, he said, the, the eagle has landed and Bill showed up in Tokyo. <laughs> I was like, thank God. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is filmmaker Sofia Coppola. She's talking with us about her new movie, Priscilla, which she wrote and directed. It's based on Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado from Fresh Air. You already know that our show has been around for more than 40 years. And even for us, we love to listen back to our interviews with some of the biggest voices in pop culture. Voices like this one from our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode. I think I had my best conversations with the dog, who was a good friend of mine and didn't challenge me in any way. (laughs) And I I certainly let let the family know what what my needs were. Um... Um, but when strangers came to the house, uh, the mute happened. That's James Earl Jones in conversation with our host, Terry Gross, more than 30 years ago, speaking about his childhood stutter. You can hear what that meant to Jones for yourself and hear all of our episodes sponsor-free by becoming a Fresher Plus supporter at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. And today we're talking to Sofia Coppola about her new film, Priscilla, which is a coming-of-age depiction of Priscilla Presley's years with Elvis Presley. The two met when she was 14 and he was 24. Priscilla is Coppola's eighth feature film. 
Some of her other films include The Virgin Suicides, Marie Antoinette, and Lost in Translation, which she won an Oscar for in 2003. Sofia Coppola's films often deal with themes of loneliness, wealth, and privilege, isolation, femininity, and adolescence in America. This fall, she published her first book called Archive, which covers her career in film. It's constructed from Coppola's personal collection of photographs and other archival materials, including annotated scripts and unseen behind-the-scenes documentation. You remarked, Sophia, that you and Priscilla um, have some similarities in that you both grew up in a bubble of celebrity, of course, in different ways, with you being the daughter of famous filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola. What are the parts of Priscilla's story that felt familiar in your own life? Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine anything on the scale of what she went through to be around, you know, someone so famous. And and that must have been such a shock because her childhood was nothing like that before. You know, I know what it's like, the, the difference between a, um, a celebrated public person and then in private they're a normal person. Like, And I'm seeing mm-hmm. the way people acted around my dad or going to the Cannes Film Festival as a kid. So I had some sense of how people act around celebrity and, of course, nothing to the scale of what Priscilla experienced. And I remember talking to my mom about how, you know, some of her frustrations of being a woman of that era and and, and it interested me because Priscilla was the same generation of my mom and, and mm-hmm. the idea that, um, you know, my mom said that you were, you know, to have a successful husband and a beautiful home that was supposed to be enough to fulfill a woman and, and she, you know, felt so confused that she had, um, you know, creative expression that she wanted to to realize and, you know, that what was wrong with her that she wasn't happy with just, you know, having a family and a beautiful home and and just to know how different the roles of women are. And, and when Elvis tells Priscilla she can't, she wants to get a job and he says, no, I need you to stay at home. You can't, right. you know, and that that yeah. was, you know, just what was expected of women at that time. Do you see your mom differently now that you're a, a parent? Your mom traveled with your dad when he yeah. made films. And do you have thoughts on what that must have been like for her? Yeah, you know, I I appreciate she always brought all our stuff with us. Like we, we lived in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma during The Outsiders. And we weren't there that long, maybe like six months. And she brought all my furniture and all my stuff and like hamster cages, like everything. And I just think like so that I... She mm-hmm. always kept our our childhood really grounded, and I feel so grateful to that because it must have been a pain, like that she, that she really, um, kind of what, like you know, would go to extreme lengths to make sure that we felt like we were at home wherever we were. Right, because your father, as um, a very successful filmmaker, traveled a lot of places, and you all always traveled with him. That was something that was yeah. important to him. Yeah, we always went on location, which was always fun and exciting because we lived in all these places but I, I would I was homesick too and I would miss you know I, we would go to local schools too so I was always lost at school but it was yeah it was always an adventure and I related to Priscilla being an army brat because that's um, how I grew up always going to be the new kid at school mm. so I could relate to that and now I'm so grateful that I that they brought me to set all the time because that's how I learned um, how to make movies I know you and your father talked a lot about filmmaking early on do you all still talk about it? Yeah, it's really impressive that he never tires of the subject. He's so still so enthusiastic, and every time I see him, he's like, "I'm recutting one of my right now. He's recutting one from the heart, and he's like discovered something new about editing. Like he's, I've just never seen someone that's so excited about the medium that he's working in. So he's really uh, given that love to us. 
When you were younger, were there any films that you really gravitated towards, that you really loved, or that your father introduced you to? You know, my dad was always watching um, kind of world cinema, foreign films that he loved, so we were always exposed to that. We were, you know, just around, and he was watching a lot of Kurosawa films and, you know, Italian and the French New Wave. So I, I... I can't think specifically. I remember seeing Breathless as a teenager and thinking it was really cool. And that's still something that I reference when I'm, you know, thinking about cinematography. And um, I still think about the the shots of them kind of around the the apartment. It feels very intimate. And um, there's something about when you hold a camera close to an actor, it has a different feeling than if you're far away with a tighter lens. There's like the physical closeness. That's something that um, I definitely think about. It seems like we see it in your work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. That just that sort of intimacy and people in their, yeah, at home and the way they are when they're alone. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is filmmaker Sofia Coppola. She's talking with us about her new movie, Priscilla, which she wrote and directed. It's based on Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This is Fresh Air, and today we're talking to Sofia Coppola about her new film, Priscilla, which is a coming-of-age account of Priscilla Presley's years with Elvis, who began seeing her when she was 14 and he was 24. This is Coppola's eighth feature film, and some of her other films include The Virgin Suicides, Marie Antoinette, and Lost in Translation, which she won an Oscar for in 2003 for Best Original Screenplay. This fall, she published her first book called Archive, which covers her career in film. It's constructed from Coppola's personal collection of photographs and other archival materials. Sophia, how did you come up with the idea for your book, Archive? You know, every time I finish a film, I kind of throw all the stuff from my desk and the materials from prep in a box. And I guess during the pandemic, I I was looking for some photos and started going through them. And I found all these um, packets from a Japanese one-hour photo place of all these packets of photos from Lost in Translation and I thought yeah. I should do something with them and, and make a scrapbook because I felt like, oh, now there's been enough films that I hoped that young filmmakers or young people that are interested in my work, it might be interesting to see the references and where things, you know, how things are made a little bit. And and for me, it's fun to see how continuity photos or Polaroids and lo- location photos and and also share the work of all my collaborators, you know, to share the work that we all did together. 
Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your young fans. I heard there was a line wrapped around the corner during a recent book signing um, here in L.A., and most of the people in line were young women who were deeply moved. They feel seen by your work. Um, Why do you think generations of new fans continue to, to connect with you so deeply? Yeah, I was so touched by that. It was so moving to see these young women because I made those films for young women. And at the time, not very many people saw them. They got very small releases. They weren't really, um, they didn't really connect at the time. And You're talking about like virgin suicides for, and um, and Marie Antoinette. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Those were, um, they had very, the releases did not, were not successful. They weren't really seen. And then I remember when I was working on Bling Wing, Leslie Mann told me that, she wanted to do my film and that her daughter loved Virgin Suicides. And I thought, how does her daughter even know about that movie? It wasn't, she wasn't even born then. And it was really um, cool to discover there was a whole new generation that had, you know, see, had been seeing the films because of the internet. And um, and then, yeah, recently just, uh, you know, th- that those films have um, had another life just means, means so much to me because I did make them for young women and the fact that they still speak to young women today um, is is so cool. Have you watched any of the TikTok tribute edits? You know, people do edits of <laughs> oh. different films. There's so many edits of virgin suicides. I mean, teenage oh, really? girls are still very obsessed with it. Oh, that's so cool. No, my daughters kind of roll their eyes and they're like, oh, you're trending on TikTok again. And I, <laughs> but I don't, um, yeah, no, I have to ask them to show me. They showed me some Priscilla ones the other night. So that was fun to see, but I'm kind of oblivious to TikTok. But I'm happy that the, um, that the mood of it still feels resonant. Has being a mother of daughters shifted or changed your point of view about the interior lives of teenagers? I mean, you're seeing it now from different vantage points as a mom. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I love I love teenage girls, and it's fun to pass by their rooms and see these still lives that look like, you know, still life and virgin suicides with, you know, perfume bottles. And it, you know, reminds me of, mm-hmm. of that age, which I um, still feel connected to. But obviously, it's so different now. And I think when I was working on Priscilla, it definitely helped to have both perspectives. And um, when I was filming the scene of her first kiss, I was so glad that Pris- that uh, Kaylee's in her twenties because I could never, mm. I would never have been able to direct a you know teenage mm. girl with this older guy. Even though at the time, I know that that feeling that you don't think, but as a mother, I'm looking at them in a protective way. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it was, but it was interesting that I was, you know, doing these scenes with the rebellious daughter while I'm, you know, living in a at home. I'm a mom of teenage girls. So many young women, and I'm saying this because I have a teenage daughter in my house, and oh. she's kind of obsessed with you, by the way. Oh wow! So, I'm so yeah, flattered. Um, but you know what really seems especially true is that through. Um, your work, young women see a pathway to finding their point of view. That's another part of it. Like you give them language and aesthetics for that. And I'm just wondering for you as someone who has had to really break through really like that nepotism baby talk, um, found the clarity to find your point of view. Yeah. I mean, I remember in my, in my twenties really trying to figure out um, what I was what I wanted to make. And when I, when I read the book of Virgin Suicides, I had such a clear idea of, 
of how it should look and feel and what I wanted to express in it. And I, I had a great um, photo teacher, Paul Jasmine, from who was teaching Art Center, who was one of the first people that from I was taking photos and he was saying and told me that I had a um, a unique point of view, which no one outside of my family had ever told me that. And it gave me the confidence that oh maybe my point of view is worthwhile. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I started working on Virgin Suicides, which was related to the kind of photography that I was doing at the time. And also spending time in Japan in the early 90s, there was a photographer, Hiromix, and, and a lot of this kind of girly culture and this kind of snapshots of girls in their rooms. And and that world was um, inspiring to me and felt I felt connected to it. But I wasn't seeing it in any movies. I never saw teenage girls depicted, or rarely, I'll say, um, rarely depicted in a way that I felt was relatable and kind of... Uh, true to that experience for me so yeah the fact that there's um you know girls and young women that feel seen and they a lot of them are telling me they want to be filmmakers and it's so exciting that I think oh my god there's going to be a huge wave of all these films made by these Mm. young women that I you know I can't wait to see are you still as innately curious about their interior lives in the same way that you were earlier in your career or are there other themes that you're also curious about these days I've always liked stories about identity and how people become who they are. So I think it can manifest in different ways. But um, I do, I don't know, I feel a connection to that, but I do also feel like I need to grow up and do so other subject really? matter. And yeah. I don't know. I just, I what try does to be, growing up mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, do you have older? I mean, and I'd love to, I always want to find other things to do with Kirsten. And um, no, I, I, I'm interested in, in, in different characters, not just that side. But the part of it I like is... I always like stories about transformation, and that's such an extreme time of transformation. And also, I think, you know, you have more time and and emotional space to really, you know, think about um, deep things where, I don't know, when you're older, you're kind of busy doing life. It's true. You know, one thing I was interested in knowing more about um, is when you were reading um, Priscilla Presley's memoir, it was... At the height of lockdown, right? It, was it? Yeah, is it right that uh, you had COVID? You oh, you know what? I I I guess it was maybe it was two years ago. It was um I was at home with COVID and just like in bed for a week by myself, like contemplating life <laughs> and those kind of breaks that you do. Which after that, I was like, oh, I have to do that more often, where you just take a sick week and just take the week off to be quiet. Um, and think about what you really want to do. And I was working on a another project that I'd spent really um, the past two years working on, and it was a big, ambitious, expensive um, Edith Wharton story, and it was it was all falling apart. And I just was like, oh, I have to muster up the energy to keep going. And then I just kind of paused, and and one of my good friends said to me, like, you need to go back to being a director, and to, you know, like you've been spending the last few years being a producer, trying to get something together, and the financing, mm-hmm. and and like you need to do what you like, do what you do. And um, and when I was thinking, I had been thinking a little bit about this um, personal story. Then I thought, in that moment, like, yeah, I could see exactly how to make this. And just I got really excited about the actual making of it as a director and the visuals. And um, and I remember calling my agent saying, I, I want to do this, and and just switching gears and um, and just jumping into this. Yeah, I'm just very fascinated by space, like allowing you the space to think deeply about like what is the project that I'm going to take on and and how am I going to take it on? I'm hearing from you too that there's a big difference in the type of mind you need as a producer versus a director. It sounds like a director is when you get in the creative. 
Definitely, definitely. I like I like both, and there's the and I do the producing side because I like to have control so that I have you know the the most creativity to to make um, what I want to make. But there, it's a different if it's a different mode, and that the producer has to be practical, and the and the as a director, you're just interpreting things in a visual way, and it's more intuitive and emotional and about the actors and the and the creating the world which which I love to do so um so yeah it's important to have that quiet moment to figure out what you really want to do because I I never want to do anything that I don't connect with but um I my mom told me this I don't know it exactly but this Agnes Martin quote that she loved who's a painter that my mom admires and and she told me recently that she was obsessed with this quote and it was um do what you want to do don't do what you don't want to do and make the space or the quiet to to hear that which i thought is um is such a good thing to remember yeah you know what's really interesting is um this is the fourth time that you've been on fresh air and it is so it was wow. great actually to to listen back to your old interviews because oh, wow it really feels like we're following you through every stage of your career. <laughs> You're very far from the nepotism baby moniker. I mean, you are you have a name in your own right. I mean, I'm just wondering if you're looking at your career in phases, what phase would you say that you're in now? Yeah, you know, I don't usually I'm just so busy trying to make stuff and fighting to get it made that I don't pause and look at it and by making this book it was nice to to just have a moment where I looked like, wow, I have a whole body of work. I didn't realize that like, you don't usually sit back and see that. But yeah, I'm so grateful because it was really, um, I remember it was a lot of work and really daunting in my, in my beginning of my career to, to be taken seriously and to, to make a name for myself and not, you know, and I was dismissed a lot and I just kind of ignored it and kept going. And like, so to be at this point where, People respect my work and and see me that way is really um, it's really gratifying and that's why I get annoyed with the nepo baby thing because I worked really hard to be seen as my own person and um, and it means a lot to me. Sophia Coppola, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Award-winning filmmaker Sophia Coppola. We spoke with her about her new film Priscilla. Coming up, critic Ken Tucker has an appreciation of rock singer-songwriter Dwight Twilley, who died last month at the age of 72. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This is Fresh Air.
Our rock critic Ken Tucker has an appreciation of rock singer-songwriter Dwight Twilley, who died late last month at the age of 72. Over the course of a career that began in the 1970s, the Oklahoma native had only two top 20 hit singles, but was widely considered a key figure in the subgenre of power pop. You may have heard his best-known song, I'm on Fire, played in the most recent season of the TV show Reservation Dogs. Ken has these thoughts about a rocker who never quite became a rock star. The Dwight Twilley Band released the song I'm on Fire in 1975. It was a small miracle, a great pop tune with not one but two hooks. The first came at the end of the verse, the you ain't, you ain't got no lover phrase that I played to start this review. The second hook comes up just a little later, right where you'd expect it, in a chorus that draws you in. You get singed by this guy who's on fire with love. I'm on Fire seemed to come out of nowhere, but had its origin in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Dwight Twilley had met Phil Seymour after a local screening of A Hard Day's Night. Buzzed on Beatlemania, they formed a band and cut I'm on Fire at Shelter Records, the label co-founded by another Oklahoman, Leon Russell. Twilley had classic teen idol looks, high cheekbones, deep-set eyes, a perfect shag. He was ready to set the world on fire. It never happened. Dwight Twilley Band released their debut album, Sincerely, in 1976, the same year the debut album by the Ramones helped kick off punk rock. Between the abrasiveness of punk and the chart-topping soft rock of the Eagles, the sound Twilley was making, crisp but pretty, vehement but intimate, fell through the cracks. He was among the first of a subset of power-pop artists who made catchy, jangling guitar music that never caught on with the masses, such as Matthew Sweet, Big Star, Shoes, and one of the bands Phil Seymour joined after he split from Twilly, the Plimsolls. 
Here's Twilly from that debut. I love that song, Three Persons, for the utterly charming awkwardness of its opening line. Quote, Three persons is a thorn in a side of romance. Uh, say what, Dwight? A bit later, he sings plaintively, Respect, respect my sensitivity. And that is the perfect, boiled-down essence of all power pop music. It's the genre that showcases mostly men singing about mostly women in moments of romantic agony. A guy's heart gets broken and he doesn't get angry, he doesn't get bitter, he doesn't get revenge. He drops any macho pretense, he suffers and yearns and lays himself open to ridicule while begging, respect my sensitivity. And here's one reason Dwight Twilley never became a rock star. Respect and sensitivity aren't high on most people's list of sentiments to dance to. I saw on social media that Twilly had died, I discovered that I was friends with him on Facebook. I try to maintain a distance from artists whose work I might review, but I think in this case, with Twilly lacking a record deal or a PR company, I must have accepted his Facebook friend request as a way of making sure that I'd know when he put out new music. Twilly never lost the knack for dramatizing the pain of love rejected. If you're ever looking to find a soundtrack for that situation in your own life, I hope you'll seek out Dwight Twilley's rock and roll sincerity. Rock critic Ken Tucker. Dwight Twilley died last month. He was 72. On tomorrow's show, Black Thought, a.k.a. Tariq Trotter, the lead MC for The Roots and house band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. In his new memoir, Trotter shares for the first time how a series of tragedies, including accidentally burning down his family's home at six, have served as a catalyst for creating the sound of the pioneering rap group. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.